Well, hello, and welcome to episode two of Polite Company, a podcast on the things that we aren't, the two things that we aren't supposed to talk about in Polite Company, religion and politics. Hello, my name is Dennis Sanders, your host, and thanks for joining me. Please consider rating this podcast and leaving a good review. Even better, consider subscribing on whatever uh, podcast service you listen to Polite Company. Well, last time on our inaugural episode, we talked about creating a center-right third party as an alternative to the Republican Party. This week is a little bit different. We are still talking about politics, of course, uh, but instead we are going to talk about demographics and how our changing demographics in America have, in, in some ways, polarized our society and has made our politics basically insane. Before I go into that, I want to share a little bit of what I'm working on next. Um, as we have as we have said, this is a podcast that deals with both uh, politics and religion. So Nick, in an upcoming um, episode, I want to deal with religion where it intersects with politics. Um, like everything else in our society these days, our churches and other places of worship are polarizing. And so I'd love your help on this. How would you describe the people who attend your place of worship are they? Is it a place that is mostly progressive? Is it a place of worship that's mostly conservative, or is it mixed? And can people in your congregation come together and meet in spite of political differences, or actually do they meet because of them? I would love to hear hear your views. So uh, drop me an email by going to denmin at gmail.com. That is D-E-N as in Nancy, M as in Minnesota, I, N as in Nancy, N as in Nancy at gmail.com. So now to uh, the topic at hand. The question that I have and probably that you have is why is American politics so toxic these days? What in the world caused it? And there are a lot of reasons of why that is, and we don't want to spend forever going into that. But I want to argue that part of it centers on one um, belief, and that is demographics. Um, about 20 years ago, two progressive writers released a, um, I think it was first an essay and then a book about the electoral hopes of Democrats. And I think that their findings really changed the two major political parties. And I don't think that they changed them for the better. So back in 2002, there were these two political writers. One is John B. Judas, and the other one is Rui Tixera. And they published this book, and it's called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And it was in some ways a counterpoint 
to another book that was written about 30 years earlier uh, by then-Republican operative Kevin Phillips, and his book was called The Emerging Republican Majority, and it was written in 1969. Now, Judas and Teixeira believed that at some point in the near future, Democrats were going to win the presidency and Congress due to growing populations of non-white Americans. They believed that a coalition of primarily minorities and progressive whites would create an enduring Democratic majority. Now, what made them think that this coalition was going to form a longstanding coalition? Well, Judas and Texera believed that non-white Americans were voting Democratic and not voting for the Republicans. And because that was a population that was growing, it meant that for the Democrats that they would have an enduring governing majority for years, if not decades to come. So when Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, Judas and Teixeira believed that this election was an inflection point. They thought this was the time. This was the time that was going to change um, the political nature of America, as I said, for decades. And they wrote this in a journal um, immediately after the 2008 elections. And this is what they say. If Obama and the Congressional Democrats act boldly, they can not only attest the downturn, but also lay the basis for an enduring majority. As was the case with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, many of the measures necessary to combat today's recession will also help ensure the long-term Democratic electoral success. Many Southerners remain Democrats for generations, in part because of Roosevelt's rural electrification program. A similar program for bringing broadband to the hinterland could lure these voters back to the Democratic Party. And national health insurance could play the same role Democrats' future prospects in Democrats' future prospects that Social Security played in the perpetuation of the New Deal majority. So that's where they were. And if you think about it, some of this made some sense because in 2008, 2009, the Democrats had control of Congress and they had control of now the White House. And there was a belief that this might be a majority that could last a long, long time. Now, this is at the point where I'm going to present my own theory. And it's really just my own theory. There is no science to this. I haven't studied um, lots of um, polls or anything over the last few years, but it is just really just the observate my observations, I would say, over the last 20 years and how I've seen how both parties have operated in light of this belief of demographics being um, in some ways, destiny, and how that has, in some ways, changed the part, the both parties, in not so good ways. So, let's look at the Democrats first. So, among Democrats, I think one of the things that happened was that they didn't have to court 
working class voters anymore, especially white working class voters. What they saw happened, and I think that that what happened, especially in 2008, gave them permission. And what they saw happen in that year was that the so-called coalition of the ascendant told them that they found a winning coalition that could be their ticket. Now, this move away from working class voters had been happening within the Democratic Party for years, but in some ways this coming Democratic majority intensified things. Now, it didn't also just change outreach, it changed policy at well. If you think about it, way back in um, 2010, the Democrats were actually split on immigration. There was, they had strong um, support from unions, and unions were not very crazy about um, immigration. There was a lot of, um, in some ways, split. And, and as I say, it was, in many ways, it was a class based split. Maybe when I look at, if you ever have the chance to look at the um, 1996 Democratic platform um, on immigration, and if you wait a moment, I will find it so that I can read it to you because it is fascinating to see how um, the parties have changed. So um, here is the party of, of, of Bill Clinton in 1986 or 1996. And this is what um, was the platform for that year when it came to immigration. And it said, we must remain a nation of laws. We cannot tolerate illegal immigration and we must stop it. For years, Washington talked tough, but failed to act. Our borders might as well not have existed. The border was underpatrolled, and what patrols there were were ill-equipped, were under-equipped. Drugs flowed freely. Illegal immigration was rampant. Criminal immigrants deported after committing crimes in America returned the very next day to commit crimes again. Now, if you didn't know any better, if I didn't tell you, that almost sounds like it was the Republican platform, at least um, under Donald Trump. But that wasn't, that was from the Democrats in 1996, 25 years ago. Now, here is the platform in 2016 when it comes to uh, the when it comes to immigration. And it reads the following. Democrats believe we need to urgently fix our broken immigration system, which tears families apart and keeps workers in the shadows and create a path to citizenship for law-abiding families who are here, making a better life for their families and contributing to their communities and our country. We should repeal the three-year, ten-year, and permanent bars, which often force persons in mixed-status families into heartbreaking dilemma of either pursuing a green card by leaving the country and their loved ones behind or remaining in the shadows. We will work with Congress to end the forced and prolonged expulsion from the country 
that these immigrants endure when trying to adjust their status. So you can see the big change in 25 years there. Um, and that has had an impact. Um, between 1994 and 2019, so again, another 25-year period, the amount of Democrats that believed that immigrants took jobs declined by 50%. So that was something that was more commonly believed in 1994. By 2019, it basically the support had dropped by half. More immigration for Democrats was a good thing because what it meant was more potential voters. And um, that it was especially a good thing after the 1965 immigration reform. So that for them, diverse, a diverse country was a good thing, and it is a good thing, but it also meant potential voters. Now, what was going on on the other side? Republicans were also changing to the dem um, and responding to the changing demographics. Now, if you believe that de the demographics are destiny, then if you're the Republican Party that has a mostly white base, you're going to do what you can to forestall the future as much as possible. And for them, if all of these people... Uh, new immigrants um, and and changing with from within were going to be if all of these persons of color were going to be Democrats. Then, frankly, it made no sense to reach out to them. So, this also changed their views on immigration. Um, there was much more support within the GOP when it came to immigration. Um, that has changed dramatically. Uh, Again, if more people of color meant more Democrats, then you had to slow immigration down, if not stop it altogether. That was the only way that the G GOP was going to win. And you had to find ways to keep enough persons of color from voting. Now, of course, they couldn't ban people from voting, but they did try in many ways to suppress the vote in different places around the nation. Now, not every charge of voter suppression is true, but the efforts, as we saw back in November, to try to prohibit uh, mail-in voting, um, there was a case, especially in Houston, where they limited um, where you could drop off your mail-in ballots to one place in um, Harris County, which is where Houston resides. That made it very hard. What has happened is that they have, because of that change, in some ways have just stopped. And what it also opened up is that the party became the party of white resentment and hostility to people of color. And if you think about it, Donald Trump is the perfect politician for this climate. Um, for Republicans, he is... And maybe this is why he has such a, a ginormous following among the base is that he is considered the bulwark against what they think is a demographic nightmare where they won't have any power anymore. For Democrats, he is mostly seen in some ways um, as a last gasp of white America 
or he is a barrier to the promised land of demographic destiny. Now, all of this is also affecting how we're viewing the structure of American government. Now, as you've probably heard in, in school, we have a Republican form of government. It does not mean we are not a democracy. We are a democracy, but we're not a pure democracy. We are not a direct democracy. That means that there are, you're going to have some portions of the government that in, are undemocratic in nature, but you need them in order to have a democratic society. So the, there are these structures that have been out there, have been created, such as the Electoral College or the Senate, which are designed in some ways to give smaller states some say um, in governing so that you don't have larger states such as California and Texas basically running the show. So what it does is it kind of basically skews the, um, the field. All of a sudden, the smallest state in population, which is Wyoming, it has three electoral votes, has two senators. And so all of a sudden, they have a huge amount of power compared to the most popular state, which is California. The Golden State has 55 electoral votes, um, but it gets the same number of senators. So the result, at least if you see this in a way that doesn't seem fair, is that Wyoming has more power compared to California. And just a side note, um, though it's not that much of a side note, is every time that people maybe has a um, want to talk about, say, the Electoral College and why it needs to go, we almost always talk about these two states, Wyoming and California. And I've always wondered why. And the answer, of course, lies in demographics. Wyoming is a mostly white state. Um, whites make about 91% of its population of 579,000 people. California, on the other hand, is 60% white. 40% of the population is Hispanic. Um, it is um, a population of 40 million. So you have one state, state that is very much small and very white, and the other one that is large and very diverse. And the problem comes especially when you think about the um, 2016 presidential election. Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote. She won, of course, by running up votes in California, which is a heavily Democratic state but she also lost the Electoral College. And that has been, in some ways, proof positive of why we need to get rid of the Electoral College and the Senate, because they are considered relics of a racist past. Republicans, in some ways, see these things as the only things that can keep them in power. And Democrats see this, see them as barriers to um, having them have an enduring um, majority. 
And so what's been the result? Well, our focus on demographics has created this political system now that is incredibly polarized and doesn't work. The founders created a system that was based on compromise. Um, But the promise or doom of demographics has made any sense of compromise virtually impossible because you don't want to do anything that could help the other side win forever. When Judas and Texera um, created their theory 20 years ago, I'm pretty sure they did not have any idea how this was going to change America. Their take on demographics is true. We are becoming more diverse. We are becoming, quote unquote, brown. And that is a good thing. That is a good thing for America all around. We should be happy to see an America that is so diverse. The problem is when we made demographics tied to electoral politics, it ended up poisoning our political system. In the end, it may have been better that they had not, that they tried to keep and and that all of us in some ways try to keep race and ethnicity out of electoral politics. Because by tying your prospects to the ongoing browning of America, it has made politics now a tug of war. And frankly, no matter who wins, it is America that's going to end up losing. So that is it for this week. Um, Let me know what you think about this. It is, um, like I said, this is only was me based on observations that I have noticed over the last 20 years or so. But um, that's just my observations, and I would love to hear what other people think. Um, Again, if you have any questions or concerns, uh, send me an email at denmin, D-E-N-M-I-N-N, at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. Um, I am working on, as I said, a religious topics, and that will be basically on um, polarization. Um, I may also be talking about um, religion and the common common ground, um, which is also um, important. So that's where we are this week. Um, we will be back again with some other. Um, interesting topics, and I hope it's sometime in the near future also to have some interviews. Um, We'll see how things go, but I'm hoping to get some people to talk about various topics. So have a good week. Have a good week. Until I see you again, Godspeed. Godspeed.